The Guardian. Hello, this is The Business. I'm Adit Chakravorty. On this week's podcast, an oil slick off the Gulf of Mexico. But why has BP's PR strategy been so disastrous? We're going to do what's necessary to protect the American people, to determine who's behind this potentially deadly act and to see that justice is done. It wasn't our accident, but we are absolutely responsible for the oil, for cleaning it up, and that's what we intend to do. The markets will be watching this week's election results like the proverbial hawk. But how will they react? I know some strategists who are going to be in writing notes ready for the people who come in in the morning, and and most trading desks we've spoken to said that they will be staffed, because like I say, if, if everyone else is doing it, you can't not. And finally, a bailout for the Greeks. What does it mean for the single currency club? So the people who now say we've had a gigantic car crash, we should get back in the car and drive even faster towards political union suggests to me that you're just heading towards an even bigger wall in the hope the car will survive it the second time around with a bigger engine. This is The Business from The Guardian. And in the studio today, we have The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott, Katie Allen, also from our economics desk, and Viewpoint columnist, Niels Prattley. Welcome to you all. Hello. 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 First today, twenty billion pounds have been wiped off BP stock market value following the oil spill off the Gulf of Mexico. There are now warnings it could take three months to stem the flow, and a blame game is already underway. We'll hear in a second from BP's CEO Tony Hayward, but first, President Obama. BP is responsible for this leak. BP will be paying the bill. But as President of the United States, I'm going to spare no effort to respond to this crisis for as long as it continues. And we will spare no resource to clean up whatever damage is caused. And while there will be time to fully investigate what happened on that rig and hold responsible parties accountable, our focus now is on a fully coordinated, relentless response effort to stop the leak and prevent more damage to the Gulf. It wasn't our accident, but we are absolutely responsible for the oil, for cleaning it up, and that's what we intend to do. The drilling rig was a transocean drilling rig. Uh, it was their rig and their equipment that failed, run by their people with their processes. But our responsibility is the oil, and the responsibility is ours to clean it up. And that's what we're doing. BP's Tony Hayward there. Niels Prattley, let's begin with you. How well do you think the oil joint's done in handling this giant oil slick? Well, the communication, it, it's tricky, isn't it? Because it's almost sort of unspinnable, this. Uh, you know, I mean, oil on water, as the, as the oil industry puts it, I mean, is their, is their worst nightmare. I think they've got several things right. They've flown Tony Hayward out to America, got him there, put him in front of the TV cameras, got him in, uh, up to Washington. Uh, they've mobilised um, a lot of ships, a lot of uh, boons and so on, and shouted about it and made uh, great play of the efforts they've been making. Their problem is that, um, as the clip said, that this could take uh, three months in order to uh, to cap it, and three months of terrible headlines um, start to become very expensive, and you run out of things to say. Is that twenty billion quid's worth of bad headlines, though? I think, as we stand here today, two weeks after the spill, I think that you know the highest estimate, any sensible estimate of the of the cleanup bill that could land on BP is about ten billion. So the loss of market cap is about twice the worst estimate. That's partly explainable because deep 
sea uh, drilling will be affected. We know that there's a terrible risk to, to BP's reputation. But I think wh- even when you add all those elements up, it's quite hard to come up with a figure saying BP's shares should be worth 20 billion less than they were a fortnight ago. Larry, in some ways, you'd think this would almost be good news for BP because after the clear up, you've probably got a big rise in the price of oil, which should mean a rise in BP shares, shouldn't it? Oh, I'd have said so, yeah. If I had you know, the odd two million to spare, I think I might be uh, long of BP shares at some point. They've, as Neil says, they've fallen an awful long way and oil prices are you know, getting quite close to $90 a barrel. Um, sort of indication of shortages of oil around the world. I mean, one of the reasons that BP is drilling in the Gulf of Mexico is because people are desperate for, for more oil. So, uh, you know, we're pumping oil to the maximum capacity we possibly can, desperately looking for new oil. The price is only heading in one direction, I think, which is upwards, given the likelihood of peak oil now at some point in the future. So in the long run, you know, once, if, if BP can get over this, if, I mean, presumably it will do at some point, it, its shares will go up, I think, go back up again. Neil, just to come back to you, the most ominous part of that Barack Obama clip, though, is when he says, we'll come back to who's responsible for this later. Yeah. That indicates that the White House is going to go head to head with BP over this. They they want to get a scalp out of this, don't they? Possibly. I mean, I think BP would quite like uh, that debate to start um, opening up because they would. You know, when Hayward says it's not our accident, he means it's it's Transocean's accident. It's they, their they, were, they were the subcontractor. It was their. Um, uh, blowout protector that failed, as he says. And I think BP at some point will, will start looking to, to pin quite a lot of the blame and some of the costs onto Transocean. So I think they would probably welcome that debate. It's not a particularly um, inspiring defence, though, is it, with somebody else's fault, is it, in those circumstances? A bit like a head teacher coming along and saying, yeah, well, no, it was two of our kids that went in and blew up your, your shop, yeah. but actually, you know, it was them and their parents who you should be blaming for this, you know, even though it was done during school time. It's, yeah. it's maybe strictly legally true, but in terms of the PR argument, it's a bit of a, it's just a bit curmudgeonly. I mean, wouldn't, I, I think hey, we would have been better off going over there saying, look, we're going to have to pay the bill for this. Hands up, it's our responsibility. We'll sort out our subcontractors later. You know, well, he is saying that as well, isn't he? I mean, he is saying we, we, will, we will pay the clean-up bill, and he's got to say that because that's what the law says. Yeah. Yeah. Since you seem to be slightly sceptical of the way the markets are marked down BP shares, what do you think is going to happen? Should we be buying them? Um, I think there's going to be a buying opportunity at some point. Whether it's today, I don't know. I would like to see, you know, in, instinct says they're getting pretty cheap at this point. Um, gut instinct says sort of hang on a week or two and let's see where we are then. Okay, we'll come back to you in, in a yeah. month. And if I've lost my 50 quid, Niels, you'll be hearing about it. Right, we'll leave that item there. If you want to follow the story, you can go to guardian.co.uk forward slash business. This is The Business from The Guardian. At last, a four-week slog is almost over. Yes, I'm talking about the general election. Voters go to the polls on Thursday, but what will the markets do on Friday? We've all been hearing the city's concerns over a hung parliament, so what will happen in the hours after the polls close? Larry, you're there in small hours of Friday morning. What are you going to do with your guilt futures? I think it's going to be, um, it will depend on what the result is. I think if the Tories were to win with the overall majority, I think the guilt's market would probably rally because there would be a decisive outcome to the election and most people in the city want a Tory government anyway. So both for personal reasons and for political reasons and probably economic reasons, the, the guilt's market would rally. I think if the election is very, very indecisive, by which, you know, assume Labour get 250, 260 seats, Tories get 270 to 80, Liberals have 70 or 80 thereabouts, I think that will be 
uh, a sell signal. I think there will be quite a lot of turbulence. The, the knee-jack reaction will be to sell the market, probably sell it quite hard um, overnight, and then the people will reassess it on Friday afternoon, Friday morning, Friday afternoon, when they, when they see how the dust is going to settle and who's going to do a deal with whom. Katie Allen, let's bring <coughs> you in here. Um, you could sell UK stuff, gilts, pound, whatever. You could, But what would you exactly be buying? Not Greek stuff, not Spanish stuff, Portuguese. What, what exactly would you be buying? Gold? Right, right now you'd be buying gold. Gold has hit record highs in Swiss franc denominated terms, in sterling denominated terms, um, also in euro denominated terms, um, partly because of worries about Greece's contagion not actually being contained and, and that we could see other nations fall to, to downgrades. But having said that, I mean, if you look at the way... Um, gilt so uk government bond and uk government bond futures are performing they're actually doing quite well so all this talk about a uk downgrade is perhaps slightly overdone in the market size in terms of what you'd buy in the uk i think from talking to traders about the market being open overnight for the first time um, in the gilt futures market this year for the election most people are saying if anything at all is priced in it's uncertainty Mm. and perhaps any result might actually give a a relief rally unless like larry says it's very indecisive Mm. You could probably see the the pound rally and um, gilt futures as well. Isn't that the, the point, though, Nils? I mean, sure, you know, people who work in financial markets aren't stupid. They read the papers. They try and keep abreast of current ev- events. They'll know this election is going to be quite a close one. A, a hung parliament or whatever on Friday shouldn't come as too much a surprise them, should it? Yeah, I would have thought a hung parliament is in the price. Um, what's not in the price, possibly, is a hung parliament plus a constitutional crisis. If um, if the Lib Dems uh, have hold the balance of power and just, and insist on um, a reform to the electoral system, I don't think that is fully in the price yet. I think what you might get if you get a very small Tory majority, say, ten seat majority, I think that would people would want to have an, another look at that on Friday morning as well, because that could almost be, uh, you know, the most dangerous outcome of all for the for the gilts markets, because such parliaments, we know, don't don't tend to go the full term. What's the best case and what's the worst case for Friday for the markets then? The best case for, for, for gilts is, uh, is clearly a, um, a large uh, Tory majority. I mean, they would, you know, gilts would rally on that, I'm sure. I think the second best option would probably be a, a Labour majority. I mean, I think that's what they would... Mm. So just any majority? Any majority, I think, would be seen as bullish for gilts, but a Tory majority would probably be slightly more bullish because they've, they've, they've shown a more hawkish attitude towards sorting out the deficit problem in the gilts market. We'd probably, probably like that that message but uh, i think that the you know the fact is that these guys are going to be in there at one or two o'clock in the morning traders like to see the price move otherwise why are they there they're not going to sit there and not, not move the price so they're going to want to see them either gilts go up or gilts go down uh, otherwise you know why don't you just wait till eight o'clock the following morning and do it katie that does bring up a point i mean what kind of person is it that goes around trading gilts at one o'clock in the morning? Well, I think you have to remember that these. <laughs> um, I mean, th- these people are there because they they've got clients who've got positions as well. So if you know another bank is in and trading for their clients, you can't say, "Oh, I'm sorry, guys, um, I don't come in after one a.m." So people are in trying to take positions, and and, and uh, they got to unwind themselves before eight a.m. I've just been talking to people about the logic of it, and I was saying, "Well, hang on a minute. If the market opens at one a.m., normally opens at eight a.m. for the gilt market." Why not just wait till eight and unwind it? And I said, well, the point is you've got unwind new, meaning sort of get out of any position you've got that perhaps was wrong. So say you were betting on a Tory majority and it's clearly not headed that way. Rather than wait till 8am, I suppose the logic is you are getting news at 2.30 in the morning. I think the last election, um, the first time we got some kind of clear signal, you know, really clear signal was about 3.30 in the morning. So there is news to trade on. 
and their feeling is let's get in there now and and, and get out of these positions so you, you you limit your losses at least do you know anyone who's actually trading at three o'clock in the morning um, i know Have some strategists who are going to be in writing notes ready for the people who come in, in the morning and and most trading desks we've spoken to said that they will be staffed because like i say if, if everyone else is doing it you can't not you know, it's a bit like Christmas sales. You can't be the one retailer who doesn't. So um, I think most people are going to go home, have dinner, have a couple of hours of sleep and be back in 12.30, 1am for when the market opens. God knows when they'll clock off the next day, but I, I don't think we should feel too sorry for them. You know, it's, well, I think you've talked yourself into doing a colour piece there. I, the, the, unfortunately, the bank press offices are very, very strict and they won't let me spend the night with them. I, I covered the 1992 election from the office when the Tories unexpectedly won you know, and they had a... Uh, majority of 20 I think and everybody assumed that Labour were going to win right up to the last minute and I was given the task of ringing the Gilts trading floors at one in the morning after the Basildon result which clinched it and all you could hear in the background was champagne courts going off and people whooping it up and saying yes we're back with a big majority um, what the traders the, the traders were loving it I mean, the Gilts, pri- right? Gilts prices were going up and they were, I mean, they were all Tories to, 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 a, to a man and uh, or, or you could the Guardian offices of course were sort of deathly silent because we'd always all wanted Labour to win and we got the fridge full of double diamond beer for a good old 1970s style knees up <laughs> and all you could hear in the, trying the trading floors of the city were these people opening bottles of champagne and, uh, and really enjoying themselves so it was it was kind of um, a bit depressing really all right let's end this segment by going around the table since we're, we're in the business of making predictions this week Nils, what are you predicting will be the result on friday tories 10 seats short of a, uh, of an overall majority and then do uh, they need to, libs in to to tory, tory lib alliance larry uh, i think labor are going to win the majority of 150 Larry, last time you gave, <laughs> last time you gave prediction, I, I actually remember this. You, you, said, you said we'd have a narrow Labour majority. I think things have gone so well during the campaign. <laughs> Dutch. No, I think it's going to be BP profits. I, I, I think the Tories have actually fought a pretty lacklustre campaign, and I think that they'll struggle to get more than about 280 seats. I think it will be pretty close between Labour and the Conservatives. Labour will get about 250. Tories will pick up about 80 seats but end up well short of an overall majority. Liberals will get about 80 seats. They'll pick up some seats from the Tories and a few from Labour, I think. And so who will be going to the Queen to kiss hands? I've no idea. I'm not really interested in this sort of you know, haggling and horse trading. I, mean, I, I think that Gordon Brown will try and cling on if he possibly can. I mean, you know, everything I know about Gordon is that you, know, you have to prize him out of Downing Street. He's not the sort of person to say, that's it, I'm off. I Vista, I mean, I, it, it strikes me that he'll, he'll try and form a government if he possibly can. Katie, what's your punt? Um, I'm bracing for a slim Conservative majority because, like Neil says, it's bad for the market. It's also not what I want. And but I feel that they've, you know, while Larry says You'd the campaign's want a been Conservative majority, would you? Yeah, exactly. Indeed, yeah. No, um, I, I do feel that while it's been lacklustre, they've just put a hell of a lot more money into it than anyone else. You can see that by driving around the country. You don't see many billboards for anybody but the Conservatives. And I just have a feeling there's a lot of people don't come out and say they're going to vote Tory, but they do. Right, we'll park that there. If you want to follow election results on the night, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash politics. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. Now, the 110 billion euro Greek rescue package has failed to impress financial markets. And there are now fears that the deal, which was hammered out over the weekend, might not be enough. Here's the view of The Guardian's Europe editor, Ian Trainer. It's less than was originally um, uh, speculated in the past couple of weeks where one was talking of 120 billion. Uh, 110 billion is a lot of money by any standard. That's never been done before. It's uh, one of the biggest bailouts ever. 
And um, but in terms of covering Greece's refinancing needs over the next few years, it, it, it falls short. Uh, so the jury's still out whether it's going to work. But 110 billion, I mean, from the IMF and from uh, the 15 eurozone countries is 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 a, is a lot of money, particularly in the current circumstances. Of course, when 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 budgets are are being cut everywhere. But the cost of this package is that Athens will have to make some most eye-watering spending cuts ever seen. Yes, indeed. I mean, the austerity package that George Papandreou, the Greek Prime Minister, has agreed to is, is draconian. Um, arguably, um, that's the price that has to be paid and that they have been living beyond their means for a very long time, the Greeks, and they fiddled and cheated their way into the Eurozone in the first place 10 years ago, fiddling with figures and never really met the criteria for, for joining. And, um, you know, uh, all, all these chickens have now come home to roost. Um, but in terms of what the Greek government is committed to in terms of public sector cuts, pay freezes, pension cuts, pension reforms, tax rises, VAT rises, and so on and so forth, it's, it's, it's a revolution in Greece, really, if, 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 it's, if, it's, if it amounts, if it, if it takes place as, as planned. For example, the, the Greek budget deficit at the moment is at an eye-watering 13.6%, nearly 14%. And under the under the, the plans, the Greeks are committed to to cutting uh, that by six and a half percentage points uh, this year alone. Uh, that these kind of cuts have never been performed before anywhere in in Western Europe, certainly. And just tell me what happens next. There's a summit on Friday. Well, we had the agreement on Sunday. Um, with the finance ministers from the Eurozone, plus the IMS, plus the, the Greek government, and Herman van Rompuy, the, the, the European Council President who chairs the summits, has called an emergency summit for Friday. Uh, the deal is pretty much done and dusted. It's still got to go through various parliaments, particularly the German parliament. Of course, they've been the biggest sticklers. Uh, but nonetheless, it will go through, and, and this, the summit on Friday will really be a kind of post-mortem on where do we go from here, how do we prevent a situation like this in the Eurozone ever happening again, uh, what are we going to do about the rule book for the single currency, how do we punish reprobates, uh, and so on and so forth, this kind of thing. And uh, Angela Merkel in Berlin in particular, the Germans particularly, are very keen to tighten the rules and to make, try to make sure that this is a one-off and that there is no contagion effect towards Portugal, Spain, Ireland and, and places like that because basically the Europeans would, would not be able to afford a Greek-style bailout if it were to apply, for example, to Spain. Katie Allen, let's begin with you. Uh, if their main aim was to prevent a contagion effect spreading across the rest of Europe, have they succeeded? What are the markets saying? They're not saying so anymore. On Monday, we had a bit of relief in the markets um, when things seem to have been hammered out at the weekend. Um, but if you look back to yesterday, we had gold hitting record highs in um, euro and sterling denominated terms. Um, now gold is a traditional safe haven asset that people tend to flock to when there are any big economic worries. Um, similarly, government bonds um, also um, rallying and bond prices rallying yesterday. So the market seems to feel... Probably Greece can't do enough. Um, you know, there's already strikes being planned in Greece. There's street fighting going on. Will will the Greeks get those austerity measures through? And you know, anything that does happen to Greece, obviously its costs of borrowing now have, have gone up with all the downgrades that have happened to it. So the longer term picture is pretty grim. Larry, you have to say that this has been 
from top to bottom, Alpha to Omega, an absolute cock-up, isn't it? If this is meant to be some kind of rescue mon- package. Mon- monumental. I mean, it's, it beggars belief, really. And I think there are two problems here, I think. One is specific to Greece, which is that normally when a country has an IMF package imposed upon it, you get some growth in your economy because you also have a devaluation of your currency or you have an easing of monetary policy, i.e. interest rates come down, and you have you hope to benefit from an improvement in global trade. That's sort of what normally happens in, a, in the best-case scenario. Greece has none of those things. It's got a fixed currency, it's got fixed exchange rates, and its big trading partner, of course, is the rest of the Eurozone, which is really struggling. So it's hard to see where they're going to get the growth to come from in Greece. And they've got this massive austerity package, which is going to suck demand out of the economy. And an awful lot of their fiscal arithmetic relies on them not only getting the budget deficit down through cuts, but also getting growth up. And it's hard to see where the growth is going to come from. So that's one problem for Greece. The problem for the Eurozone as a whole is that um, it's really, you know, heads you lose, tails you lose, really, because either every country now is going to get a bailout along the lines that all the peripheral countries will get a bailout like Greece is getting. So Portugal will get one and Spain will get one, in which case the Eurozone (coughs) is dead in the water. Or... Countries like Greece and Portugal that can't pay their way are going to be kicked out of the Eurozone because no one's going to foot foot the bill for them indefinitely, in which case the Eurozone is also a dead duck. So it really is a very, very serious crisis for the Eurozone, this, I think. Niels, what do you think? I agree with that. I mean, I think the the overwhelming impression you get from this several weeks of uh, of crisis is how inadequate the the, the politicians have been. I mean, the, the number started off at forty five billion for Greece as a one year deal. It was up to one hundred and twenty, then back down to one hundred and ten. Nobody's got a proper handle on it. The Greeks' austerity package looks looks unachievable. But the main impression you walk away with is. Well, how is the EU going to cope if another crisis comes along? Would you trust these guys to fix Portugal or Spain? I don't think you, I don't think you would. It's almost inevitable that they'll have a go at another country, I think. Port- Portugal is not, it's, it's not quite as bad as Greece, but it's not that dissimilar. Mm. Uh, likewise, Spain, they've, they've got big budget deficits, they've got big current account deficits. Um, and I'd have thought that the markets, now they know that if push comes to shove, the Europeans will pony up the money and the IMF will come in. Well, why not have a, why not have a go at one, some of these other countries? It's, it's mm. just the normal reaction of the market. So I would have thought that given a few days... You know, the electronic herd will move move westwards across the Iberian Peninsula and uh, have a go at Portugal. I think it, it, it seems to me a bit of a no-brainer. And it, how? let's hope the Europeans respond a bit more smartly than they did in the case of Greece, where they've, you know, taken six months to, to do something which they should have sorted out an awful long time ago. Katie? I do feel that the other thing is the ratings agencies have been absolutely clear now that they are watching this extremely closely and I suppose we can come back to the UK and while I say that people feel in the markets we're not at risk of a downgrade they've been absolutely clear about what they want out of our next government whoever that might be or whichever coalition that might be and they seem to be sort of pretty um, trigger happy at the moment. Larry let's just end with some discussions of alternatives because over the past few weeks I've seen three or four different scenarios thrown up one is that the greeks should have defaulted on their debts got fessed up and said we can't pay it back at the price that we issued it so we're going to take 40 percent off the off the asking price of our debt another one is the greeks should have just left the eurozone and the final thing i've seen is germans should have left the eurozone <laughs> and left it to become an entirely club med organization are any of those plausible could greece have just defaulted and remain within the eurozone no it would have been well it would have been kicked out i think I mean, you just can't have countries defaulting, I don't think. That's just not an option. I think the most likely way forward would be to have a two-speed eurozone. So you'd have 
which is what the Eurozone should have been in the first place. You'd have a small group of countries centred around Germany, which have equivalent levels of economic development. You couldn't actually live with a single currency and a single interest rate. Um, and then you'd have an outer core uh, of countries that can't really hack it and need a bit more currency flexibility in order to um, keep their economies going without huge deflationary packages all the time. Okay. It's possible, though, that that second group wouldn't include Greece. I think yeah. that some of the other not quite so bad countries as Greece would demand that Greece be expelled <laughs> in order for the second tier to be credible because essentially you'd be you know, hampering that second outer core's chances of surviving if you had Greece inside it. So you might well have sort of three rings. You might have <laughs> you might have the German ring, the sort of second ring, which would include countries like Spain and Portugal and Italy, probably, maybe Belgium. Um, and then you'd have Greece on its own. Oh, and then Latvia and Hungary and all these other c- countries which want to come into the Eurozone. Well, at some God point. knows why they want to yeah. come into the Eurozone, <laughs> but some of them do. I but think. Honestly, Larry, how do you have one <laughs> single currency if you've got more rings than Wagner? I mean, I don't understand that. Well, I don't think the single currency, well, you know, probably no, I don't think the single currency is a good idea anyway. I thought it was a bad idea whose time had come. I thought it was mad. <laughs> From, always, always going to end up in a gigantic car crash, and so it has. So the people who now say we've had a gigantic car crash, we should get back in the car and drive even faster towards political unions suggests to me that you're just heading towards an even bigger wall in the hope the car will survive it the second time around with a bigger engine. It's been crazy. The whole thing is, was, was, a, was a lash up from start to finish. Right, well that's Larry Elliott's view. Tell us what you think by leaving your thoughts in the blog at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. That's it for this week. My thanks to Katie Allen, Larry Elliott and Niels Prattley. Ian Trainer too over in Brussels. This podcast was produced by Andy Duckworth. I'm Adit Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.